Pastor Corey here with Heights Church. Thank you for listening to our sermon podcast. If you would like more information about Heights Church, simply go to weareheights.org or follow us on our Facebook page. If you're looking to get plugged into a church, feel free to reach out to us via our website by simply clicking contact, and we will help you find a similar church in your area. Hope the podcast serves you well, and thanks for tuning in. Alright guys, so we're in Revelation, obviously, and the reason like we are reading so much at once is Revelation 1.3 says, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. So Justin is blessed for reading it, we are blessed for hearing it, and we will all be blessed for keeping it. And so every text that we preach through, even there may be some weeks where it's two chapters, it'll be a lot, so we ask you guys to stand. If you can't stand, we completely understand that, and you, you know, take a seat if you need to. Today, though, we are finishing up the seven churches. So chapter 2 had the first four churches that Corey preached on last week with Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, and Thyatira. And so today we're going to see Sardis and Philadelphia and Laodicea. These uh, churches, they're very, very different and, uh, from each other, yet there's some similarities with the first and third church, and then the middle church kind of stands on its own. But what we're going to do is we're going to walk through these churches, and you're going to see the characteristics of Christ to every letter that gets written to these churches. You'll see a church culture. You'll see accommodation for the Church of Philadelphia, and most churches were getting accommodations, but not the first and third on this week. They'll see a correction and then a challenge. So that's what we'll kind of see this pattern will follow. Um, what we're going to happen to see, though, with these churches is, is this, is that Sardis is the dying church, and Philadelphia would be the loyal church, and then Laodicea, the worthless church. Those are not the first and third definitions there for those churches are not taglines you would want tagged on to a church that you attend, nor to yourself as a believer. That is a, a kind of a scary thing, but it is exactly what Jesus calls them. I didn't have to come up with anything. I had to be super creative. I just looked at the text and I said, okay, Sardis is dying or dead. It says you are dead. And Philadelphia, they're pretty loyal to what God has called them to do. And then Laodicea, he literally calls them worthless, wretched, pitiful. They're not, they're not clicking on all cylinders as a church. Okay, so these are not where we would want to be. And so I would ask you this, just as we dive into this, is how would you respond if Jesus himself spoke to you through an angel or through a prophet like John and say, here's who you are. You are. You're dying or you're dead. It would not be a good place to be. If you're dead in your sins and trespasses, that means you're not alive in Christ. So that would catch your attention, I would hope. If you're a loyal church, then that's, that's great. That's a that a boy. Way to go. You are loyal. You're staying true to my word. You're not denying my name. You're doing what you're supposed to do. Or you could get the tagline that Laodicea has, the worthless church. None of us would want to be called worthless in anything that we do in our lives, whether it be our job, our relationships, or specifically with our relationship to Christ. That would be so scary to have that given to us. So as we break down these churches, what I really saw as I, as I studied is I kind of saw American culture laid out here, maybe even like the American church culture. And the reason I say that is this, is with Sardis, you have this appearance of life, but dead. 
Appearance of life, but dead. And so what we do in our culture is appearance is everything. We want to make sure that we appear like we have our stuff together, that everything is taken care of, that our finances are fine, our marriage is fine, our household's fine. We want to be Instagram ready. And if Instagram doesn't look good enough with the original picture, we'll just throw a filter on it, and then everything looks great, right? Like, how many of us, like, we'll just throw a filter on, like, man, that picture didn't turn out just how I wanted it, but if I put this filter on, then there's no blemishes, there's no whatever, like, I look the way I want to look, and I can present myself the way I want to present myself, I look a certain way now. And then churches do the same thing. They want churches filled with people, filling seats. They'll do anything. They have all the gimmicks. They have all the different things that draw people in. And here's the reality is you, what you win people with as a church is what you're going to keep them with. So if you win them with the gospel, if you win them with Jesus, they're going to stay because of the gospel and because of Jesus. They're not here for any gimmicks, any catchy sermon series. They're here because of Jesus. But if you win people to fill seats with prizes and, and fancy programs that don't really amount to anything, they will only stay as long as those programs and those fancy things and the, and the catchy themes keep their attention until something else comes along and they're like me and they're like squirrel and then they take off and then they're off to the next church to figure out, you know, what else there is out there that catches their eye. And so Sardis had this appearance of life, but they weren't. They were, they were really a dead church. So how many churches in America seem to have everything going well? Everything seems like they're great, but in all honesty, they're dead. And I say that as not a knock on any particular church, but the reality is, is we see churches closing each and every week. 77 churches a week close their doors across North America. So there is a problem in our church culture that churches appear alive until they cannot appear alive anymore, and then they close their doors. But then you move on to a church like Philadelphia that I think just really shows the heart of most churches in America, and here's why. In 2020, a study by Lifeway Research showed that 70% of churches in America are 100 or less people in weekly attendance. That's not a big church by most measures, but yet it's a faithful church. 65, or, um, sorry, half of all of churches in America have fewer than 65 in attendance. So 70% of churches are 100 or less, but half of all churches are 65 or less. Like that's, that should be not a thing that we're like, ooh, bad churches or all the big churches. That's not at all what I'm saying. Like you could be a large church and be super faithful and committed to the gospel and committed to evangelism and missions and, and be really good and really healthy and be doing everything God's calling you to do. But that does not always mean health either. Being large does not equal health in a church. But I want you to see that what we do in America is we want things to be bigger. We want bigger this and bigger that and, and, and big-time speakers and, and our worship team putting out albums and all those things. And none of that is bad. But if that is what we're doing just so we can appear a certain way, then we're not being what Philadelphia was, was which was just a loyal, committed church. Then you get to Laodicea. And I think this speaks so much to American culture. It says in there with Laodicea, you, shall I read it right? I know your works. You're neither hot nor cold. And I'll skip down to verse 17. It says, for you say, I am rich. I have prospered. I need nothing. Not realizing that you're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. That's who we are as Americans. We say we're rich. We don't need anything. I think maybe in this room you're like, well, I'm not rich. Well, we've said it here over the past few weeks. We are the wealthiest people in the world. Even the poorest people in America are wealthier than most people in third world countries. Like, 
we have everything we need and it makes it hard to see our need for Christ because all of our food's there. All of us have a roof over our head. You have clothes to wear. None of us are in this room are going without. You may not have all your wants, but all your needs are met. And so it makes it really hard for us to see our need. And that's where we fall into this idea of being like, I've got it all covered. I've got it all taken care of. I don't need anything. And so we cannot be like that. We need to see that we have a great need. We have a need for Christ because without him, all this stuff that we have in this life right now, it's perishing. It will not matter. And some of, most of what you guys have now will probably be in a yard sale or given to Goodwill within the next five to 10 years. It's like, so it's just not that important of stuff. And yet we make it about everything and we miss Christ and we end up like the church of Laodicea and we're worthless. So we're going to break these churches down. We're going to see that characteristic and the culture, accommodation, the the challenge and the correction in all all these churches. So let's start off with Sardis. What we see here is in verse 1 of chapter 3, we see the character of Christ. It says, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. So Right there, we just got we got to pause and figure out. Okay, what, what is Jesus saying? Who who is Jesus if he's saying the seven spirits? Because all I know is that there's the triune God: God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Right? He doesn't have seven spirits. What does that mean? Well, Corey talked about it. I think last week and in the week before that you're going to see the number seven and numbers appear a lot through Revelation. Numbers are important throughout the whole Bible. Seven is a sign of completion or perfection. And so when he says that he has the seven spirits of of God in his hands, then he is saying he is, has the Holy Spirit. He has what Sardis does not have. Many in Sardis does not have. He has the Holy Spirit. He's telling them, you have the reputation of being alive, but you're dead. If you lack the Holy Spirit, you're spiritually dead then. And so he's telling him, I have that in my hand. It goes back to Revelation 1, verse 20. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. So he's saying, I have these angels in my hand. I'm, I'm in control of them. I command them. I send them. He's sending them to these churches. And I have the seven spirit of the seven spirits of God in my hand. So he is saying, The Holy Spirit is here. So we see God the Father who has sent the Son, and then after Jesus does all his earthly ministry, he goes to the cross, he dies, he resurrects, and he ascends to heaven, and he sends the Spirit. And so that's what we're seeing is this triune God who is in perfect unison within itself, revealed in three ways, Father, Son, and Spirit. God is now saying, I'm sending the Spirit. God, Jesus, the Son, is sending the Spirit. So he's telling them, this is who I am. This is the power that I have, and you need to hear that. So that's the characteristic of Christ that we see in this letter. So why would Jesus describe himself that way? It's because, like I just said, this church is dead. They have the appearance of being alive, but they're dead. And the only thing that would make us dead spiritually is the lack of the Holy Spirit. He wants them to hear that. He wants them to understand what their culture is, is that it seemed, it seemed as if they had all their stuff together. It says you have the reputation of being alive. See, this church was not always dead. They had their stuff together. They were doing great things in the past. They were doing ministry. They were doing missions. Whatever that looked like for Sardis in their time, they were actually a faithful, good church at one point in history. And yet now they're riding on the coattails of the generation before them, 
And that was who they were. That was their church culture, saying, yeah, but we did this. How many times have you, so many of you sitting in this room, really, and was in the previous service or watching online, you went to a church, and now you're here, and you say, well, yeah, the church I used to go to 20 years ago, we were doing great things. We had a robust kids ministry. We, were, we had a robust missions or whatever it was that drew you to that church, and then something happened. The generation that was leading that charge and doing all the things, they aged. They got to the point where they couldn't do it anymore. Physically, they, they, were, they, were, they had gotten older. And as they pass away and, and they're no longer there to lead that charge, the younger generation did not step up and do it. And that church was still clinging to that reputation of who they were 20 years ago. And then slowly and slowly it happens. They close their doors and they're no longer a church. God has removed their lampstand because they were riding on the coattails of what they used to do. That can really quickly become the culture of a church. When we stop doing what we do, think we've arrived. We will never arrive until Jesus arrives to bring us back home. Like, it will not happen. Like, we have to keep working or we will be a dead church. So this is so important for us to hear this from Jesus in these words. It's saying, hey, your reputation is that you're this, but you're not See, he's omniscient, he's omnipresent, he's, he's um, just everything. He knows all stuff. He, he's, not, he's not thrown off by your facade that you've, put in, that you've put on. You can fool me, I can fool you. You can even fool people in your missional community if you work hard enough at it. It gets really hard to do because you're spending a lot of time with those people. But you can fool a lot of people, but God has seen into you. He knows if your reputation is really who you are. And he knows that about our church too. Is our heart to glorify heights or is our heart to glorify God through the church that he's given us to be part of? That's the kind of things that we have to be willing to ask ourselves. So I thought through this and like for me, like I love fitness and, and doing things and working out all the time and I haven't used a CrossFit illustration in forever. So I thought, why not just throw one in there for this Sunday? It's been a while and none of you guys laugh. Whatever, I don't care. You got me for the next four weeks. So you're stuck with me. Um, so one of the like big sales pitch for, for CrossFit was like selling true fitness, like someone being really fit, not just like the appearance of being fit. And they would use the, the idea, this illustration of like, if you have a marathon runner and you have a bodybuilder, which one is actually fit? Well, you have a marathon runner who could run 26.2 miles or whatever it is, and, but they're like skin and bones, right? Like they could do all that, but they, they're probably not lifting any weights. They, they, they don't want to be bulky. They don't want to put on sides because it makes it really hard to run 26-something miles. And then you have a bodybuilder who has all the muscles in the world, but if they tried to run, probably just from here to the front door of this church, they would maybe kill over with a heart attack because their cardio is trash. Like is one or the other actually fit. Now, I'm not debating on the whole CrossFit, like, mind of how they see fitness, but the point being is you can have a facade of fitness and truly be unhealthy as could be. You could put on a facade of having all your life together spiritually, but actually behind closed doors, you're a mess. And so Jesus, he corrects them. He tells them, like, hey, it's not too late. In verse 3, he says, remember. He just wants them to remember. He's like, hey, wake up. Remember what you knew. Don't forget. Don't be lazy. Remember. And then he tells them, strengthen 
what remains. You're about to like literally die, die. Like where there's not going to be a second chance. Like once you're dead from this life, there's not a second chance to go and repent then. It's going to be too late. And he goes on, remember what you received and heard. He wants them to cling to the gospel. Remember it. And then the next command, he gives them a correction. He says, keep it. Like think about this. What is your natural inclination? None of us in this room, none of us watching online naturally drift towards the gospel. If left to ourselves, we will always drift towards the world and towards sin. And if you say, oh, I don't, well, I don't believe you. I just don't. I don't believe you because I know my own heart. Like if I am left to myself to try to figure out everything on my own, my natural inclination is to drift towards sin. I never drift towards the gospel without focusing back on Jesus. I have to focus back on him. Otherwise, my life is going to get chaotic. And that's what he's telling them here is like, keep it. Keep the gospel in your mind. Do not give up on it. And then lastly, the last challenge he gives them, he tells them, repent. Repent. Just truly repent. Not just say, I'm sorry. Uh, Will you forgive me? Like, repent means to turn away from that sin that you have in your life. They have a lot going on in their life and turn towards Jesus. He's urging them to do that. That's some good news for them. He's not giving up on them, but he's telling them, most of you are dead. And why I say most of them are dead is because he tells them, yet you still have a few names in Sardis. People have not soiled their garments and they will walk with me in white for they are worthy. So names matter. You're gonna see names mentioned in these three churches that we close with today. And names matter because our name is either written in the book of life or it's not. The book of life is a, it's literally a book that I don't know how it works and how God does it, but if it, he has a book that he has written every Christian, every believer, every person who's been born again, their name is written in the book of life. And one day when all the stuff comes to an end, as we're going to read about in Revelation, either your name is in the book of life or it's not in the book of life. And so names matter. And he's saying there's still a few names. So this church hadn't completely died off yet. There's still some people left who are true, genuine, believers who are alive in Christ. And he's saying they haven't soiled their garments. If you don't know what that means, you know. I got in trouble last service saying what it meant. So we're not going to go there this service because we're on Facebook Live and I don't need to. So he's saying if they will keep going, I'm going to confess their name before my father. Like I'm not going to forget them before his angels. And he's warning them, like if you have an ear, hear this, know this. Like it matters where you're at. So there's an urgency to the believers in Sardis to stay doing what they're doing. And for those who are part of the church of Sardis who are not believers, there is an urgency for them to repent, to turn to, 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 uh, to turn to Jesus. Now, you get to a church though like Philadelphia. They're not all horrible and disobedient. They're a completely different kind of church. We see Christ give his um, start to this letter and it says the words of the Son of God. Or I'm sorry, I'm on the wrong text. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. This is a pointing back to Isaiah chapter 22, verse 22, where Isaiah writes of Jesus, of a prophecy of Jesus, and I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open and none shall shut, and he shall shut and none shall open. So what we see here is we see 
a ruling Jesus, a God who is a covenant-keeping God, it means he keeps his promises. All the way back, thousands of years before this is written in Isaiah, Isaiah is prophesying of Jesus that he would be the one who would have the key of David, meaning the kingdom of God, and that whatever he opens, no one can shut, and whatever he shuts, no one can open. It shows his command, his control, and his ability to be over all things. This is good for Philadelphia. This is good for their church to know that's the the characteristic of Jesus because they were small, it says. They were a small church with little power. They weren't um, there with a ton of influence. They didn't have a ton of money. They weren't the strongest. They weren't the biggest, but they were faithful. And they were being oppressed, though, by people who said they were Jews but were not really Jews. They were, Jesus describes them as the synagogue of Satan, that is not a good name to be bestowed on you either. So when Jesus tells of his power, of his truth, of his holiness, he's saying, I've got you. Though they may be oppressing you, it's okay. I've got you. Just stay doing what you do. I love this quote by Chuck Swindoll. He says this about a church that is smaller. The size of a congregation, the limitations of its location, or the restrictions of its budget should never determine its vision. Instead, churches should set their vision based on the power of their God. God is infinite, magnificent, awesome, and mighty, beyond description or comprehension. When he chooses to open opportunities, the possibilities are endless. All we need to do is trust and follow him wherever he leads. Hear me, church. Jesus is not worried about how big heights gets or does not get. He is not worried about our budget. He is not worried about who attends here or does not attend here for what he will accomplish through us. Yes, he wants you in church. Yes, he wants us to reach, the, reach all who are lost within our vicinity and further out to the ends of the nation. But what he will accomplish through us is not determined on any one individual here. But yet know this, though you may feel like your role is small, that you don't know that you play a part, God has specifically designed you to be here now in this time, in this season, for a reason, with works he prepared before time ever began. That only you can walk in the way you would walk in them. You know, I've wrestled with that as a pastor. Like, I think that's maybe one of the biggest things that pastors have to wrestle with is, like, is probably pride. You, you get up in front of people a week after week, and you talk, and people listen to you, they respect you, and then you see other pastors who are preaching in front of bigger crowds, or writing books, or they're speaking in conferences, or they're doing, leading different things, and you start thinking, man, I would like that. I would like, man, why, why am I not doing that? But yet, God has got a plan for each and every one of us. I know, without a shadow of a doubt, God has called me to be in Collinsville to do what he has designed me to do to help be part of the leadership of this church, to lead out in our missions efforts and our church planting efforts, to preach when called upon, to do the things that he's designed me to do, to care for my family, to care for my friends, to be in a missional community. Those are all the things that God has designed me to do. And could someone else do them? Yes, I am replaceable. Someone else could be hired in a month and replace me. It would be no problem. But yet they wouldn't be me. And they wouldn't be doing it the way that God's designed me to do it. Wouldn't be wrong or bad, but yet the point is, is each of us has a role to play. And no matter if you think, well, I don't have a big impact, you have all the impact that God needs you to have. And so when we see a church like Philadelphia, we can know that no matter what happens, we're going to move the end of this year into this new building, praying that God blesses and uses us to reach more people. 
But no matter what happens, we just got to stay faithful and true like this church here, knowing that Christ holds all the results in his hand for what we're going to do. And this church had such a missions and evangelistic passion. They, they, were, they just desired, and he's telling them, I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door. I hope that's what he's saying to us as a church. Hey, Heights, I know your heart. I know your desires. And I know your faithfulness. And I've got an open door for you. Go to attack the gates of hell. Go. You got this. Because I'm, I'm right there with you. I'm not behind you. I'm not, I'm not just waiting to see things go bad. I'm with you. And I've got everything in control. He promises to these people, to this church here, like, I've got you. There's going to be trial come on, and you're going to be okay. He says in verse 10, because you kept my word about patience, patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try, to try those who dwell on the earth. I, won't, I am coming soon. I don't know exactly what that trial means. I'm not going to get into the tribulation and pre-trib and post-trib and all amillennial and post-millennial. It doesn't matter right now. All I want you to know is this, is that no matter what happens, if we are in God's will, he is promising here that if we're faithful, he's got us. And that's all we really need to know. We don't have to know all the ins and outs, and, and you could try to decipher the Bible, and you'll, you're never going to know for sure when he's going to come and how it's going to look and what part we're going to play in it. But I can assure you of this, is that he has us protected in his will. And that's all we need. That's all we need. So though they're small, Jesus has got them. He's got all the power. But then here it's interesting and comes back to those names. He says, the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He's telling these people, I've placed a new name on you, my name. You're sealed because of my work on the cross, and that's how my Father will see you. And when this new heaven, this new earth come, and it's all done, and it's all taken care of, that's where you're going to be. You're going to be a pillar in that. And pillars are what hold it up. We are what is doing, we are the ones that are doing the work of the kingdom of Christ. He has called us as a church to be his chosen vehicle to take the gospel to the nations, to our neighbors. And so he's telling us we'll be a pillar. That's where we want to be. But we don't want to be where the last church is. So let's get to Laodicea. I think this could be one of the mis most misunderstood um, warnings given out of the seven churches, and I'll, and I'll tell you why in a second after we looked at, look at the characteristic of Christ. It says, the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. So he is the final word. He is the beginning of God's creation. He is preeminent. He is the firstborn. He is everything. There is nothing before him or after him, the greater than him. He is everything. He is faithful and true. So everything he tells them here is truth. No matter if it cuts deep and it hurts or not, and trust me, what he says to them does cut extremely deep, but it's faithful and true. And he's doing this. What I find great is that he says in verse 19, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. He's not telling them this to be harsh and mean and cruel because he does not love them. He's telling them this because he cares for their hearts and their souls deeply. And so I hope that you know today as you hear these words, he cares for your heart and your soul deeply. And so if any of this like, is moving in you, you got to know, like, okay, maybe he's calling me to respond to you. But let's, let's dig into what he's saying. He's telling them 
that they're worthless. Literally, he says, you're worthless. You are wretched. You're pitiful. You're poor. You're blind. You're naked. Like, there's nothing good there. And the reason why is because he says that they're lukewarm. And what we've done in American uh, culture with that and the way we break that down is we say, well, that's a lukewarm Christian. It's not. It's not what he's getting at, okay? I'm going to just cover this whole lukewarm Christian thing. Either you're a Christian or you're not. Either you're a disciple who makes disciples or you're not. There's no in-between. We all, we all go on ebbs and flows like a roller coaster through our journey of our faith. If anyone in here says like that your trajectory of your faith has always been an uphill thing and you've never had a moment where you've struggled, you're a liar. Like, yes, you have. Like, we all do. We, we wrestle with it. Like, we go and we have good days. We have bad days. Sometimes we have bad seasons. Sometimes we have good seasons. And, but always we should be progressing forward as time goes on. That God is sanctifying us. And so there's none of us that are the, this lukewarm Christian where we just stay even the whole time and nothing ever really changes in our life. I'm not saying anyone in this room is not a Christian or anyone watching online, but hear me very, very clearly. If you claim to be a Christian, yet there's zero fruits of the Spirit in your life, you're not part of a church on a regular basis, you don't tithe, you don't serve, you, you need to do some real investigating into your relationship with God because that doesn't line up with anything in the Bible about what a Christian looks like, okay? So let's, let's just throw this lukewarm Christian thing out the window, you might be in a good season right now. You might be in a bad season. But if you're born again, you're born again. You're a Christian. What it's saying is this, is that Laodicea, where it was positioned in ge geographically, had two different streams of water flowing to it. They had no water, okay? They needed water, and that's not something they could just get from wherever. So they had hot water, hot bubbling water that they would use for municipal purposes fly, flowing from Hyopolis. But here's the problem. By the time it made it to Laodicea, it was no longer hot. It was no longer good for anything. It had lost all its municipal purposes, and it was lukewarm at best. So now they had no hot water for that. It's like a hot spring. Okay, so then they had no drinking water either. That would be a big problem if you don't have any water to drink, especially everyone would like, a, like some cold water. Well, in Colossae, there was a spring of cold, crystal clear water that would flow to Laodicea. Problem was, by the time it made it there, it was lukewarm. It had gotten dirty. It was no longer good for anything, but it's all they had. It was worthless. And so when Jesus gives them this description of being like lukewarm water, they knew what he was getting at. They weren't like, hmm, wonder what he means by that. They knew very clearly that he's faithful, he's true, and he's saying, you're as bad as the water that you have. You're disgusting and gross, and I'll spit you out of my mouth. They, he's not writing to, they, he's writing to a church, but he's warning the non-believers in that church. Like, you better repent. You better get this right because there's nothing about you that is good. They were deceived. They were deceived. They thought they were good. They really did. He tells, like he says it there. He says in verse 17, for you say, I am rich. I have prospered. I need nothing, not realizing that you're wretched. And he goes on. Like, that's the attitude that many of us get. Like, we think God should be just blessed because I'm on his team. Man, he should just be so happy that he's got David to serve him. He does not need me. 
does not need me. He does not need you. But sometimes we get that attitude. Like we think we got it all covered. Like I'm rich. I got my, I got my stuff together. Everything's good. And God should just be happy that he has me. And he's saying, you do not have anything that you think that you need. You do not. And there's nothing for them, him to commend about him. There's nothing. Like he, he just keeps repeating to them, like, you need me. You need me. You're not in a place where you should be. And he tells them to go and to buy gold from him. Like, you think you're rich, but come and buy gold from me. And then to buy garments that are white so you may clothe yourself and clothe your, the shame of your nakedness that may not be seen. This is what he's wanting them to do. He wants to be able to present them to his father pure and white robes that have been washed by the, his blood to remove all the stains, all those soiled garments that, you see, that we read about in the other church. Like he's saying, I'll, I'll wash all that away. Come buy robes from me. You think you've got the stuff that you need, but you don't. You need what I have. And I, I just think it's so important for us as, as we see this and, and we like start to wrap up is what Jesus never tells them is this. Hey, I need you to get this morality thing taken care of. I need you to get your morals. Like, you guys, your morals are a little shaky. Should we be moral? Yes, we should have good Christian morals. I'm not downplaying that at all. But that's not what saves us. He's not saying, hey, grab a hold of these morals and white knuckle this thing until I return or you die, and then you're going to be okay. That's not what he's saying. He's not urging us, like, you got to get all this figured out, and you got to have it perfect, and you got to be a good, conservative, you know, whatever, and don't cuss, and don't cheat, and don't gamble, and don't chew, and it all is going to be perfect. Like, that's not what he's saying. He's just saying, love me, buy from me, come to me for everything you need, and I'm going to clothe you in white robes. And so I want you to stop and ask yourself, like, how are you responding to God? Because he says in this text right here, it's so important for us. Behold, I stand at the door and I knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. What he's not saying here, and, I, and I've tried to combat this in my years of ministry, is he's not saying, hey, accept Jesus into your heart. He's not saying that. He does not need your acceptance. He does not need it for one second. He says, it's not what he's saying, but he's saying, hey, I'm knocking. I'm that spirit, seven spirits, the spirit of God, he is sending the Holy Spirit to woo you into a relationship with him. And so if you're sitting here today, you're watching online, I want to ask you, do you have the appearance of being alive? Or do you, but really you're dead? Are you, are you kind of lukewarm as in within being worthless really to Christ because you're not a Christian? Or even faithful and true? Because if, if you're like one of these other two churches on the end, my challenge to you today is like, you need to get real and you need to respond to him knocking at the door of your heart and see, is he calling you into a relationship with him? Because if he is, it's, you respond. Don't just sit here and think, ah, eh, I'll figure it out later. He's warning them. I'm gonna come like a thief in the night. There may not be another time. This is it. This is your opportunity. Respond now so that, so that, what will he do? The one who conquers, I'll grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down my father on his throne. That's it, guys. So as Jeremy and Brianna come back up, we're going to respond to the gospel. I want you to know, like, there's nothing stopping us from just giving our all to Jesus, from placing all of our confidence in him, all of our trust in him, and responding to that call on our lives. He's the goal. He's the end. 
He's the finish line. He's the best. There's nothing else you're going to search for or achieve in this life. And so as we as a church and we as individuals go forward, I want to encourage you to truly evaluate where you're at with Christ. What kind of letter would he write to you? What would he say to you? And how will you respond? So I'm going to ask you guys to stand with me. We're going to take communion. If you're here and you're a Christian, I invite you to take communion. If you didn't grab one of the communion cups on your way in, they're up here on the tables to the side. If you're here today and you, and you don't know that you're a Christian, I want you to know that Jesus Christ came, lived, and died a perfect, sinless life and died a sacrificial death in your place. And he rose again so that you did not have to face the wrath of God. He took it all on for you. And Romans 10, 9 says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that he died and rose again, you will be saved. So today, if you've not ever confessed that and believe that in your heart, I invite you to do so today. Let me pray, and then I'm going to read to you some verses concerning communion. God, I ask today, Lord, that we, as a church, that we will be more like Philadelphia and less like those other churches, God. That we will stay faithful and true, no matter what we do according to uh, maybe standards that we've set for ourselves in American church, but God, that we will stay true to you and your word and be in your will and that we will advance your, your kingdom. Pray that for us as a church and as individuals. God, I pray and ask if there's anyone here today or watching online that does not know you, the God that you're knocking at their heart, God, I pray that they just answer, that they repent, that they turn to you, they put their faith and trust in you genuinely for the first time, not just for an appearance of life, but true eternal life found only in you. So God, we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Here's from 1 Corinthians 11 concerning communion. For I received from the Lord, but I also delivered to you that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and when he he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's proclaim his death and worship him.